From WBOI Studios in Fort Wayne, this is the I am Immigrant, and I am Ahmed Abdelmajid. I am a Palestinian immigrant who has been donning the title of immigrant for the past 24 years of my life. I am interested in conversations around the immigrant experience, a conversation that we seem to be not having or we seem to be not knowing how to have. For this podcast series, I'm hoping that we have conversations with different immigrants about all that it entails to be an immigrant. This is Katie Anderson, and I'm the program director at 89.1 WBOI. And I'm excited to be a part of a new podcast called The I and Immigrant. And now I will not be the host of the podcast, but rather it will be a community member, Ahmed Abdelmajid. And Ahmed has a really interesting background. And so for this first episode of I and Immigrant, we wanted to flip the script and interview Ahmed about his experiences and why he decided to start this podcast. Ahmed, thank you so much for being here. Oh, thank you for having me and for uh, hosting this podcast. I, an immigrant, is something that's uh, been a part of your life for quite some time. Could you explain how this came about? Through my uh, work within the community from um, either speaking about the topic of immigration or being a panelist on, on conversations around the issue, and from my own personal experience as an immigrant to the United States, um, and, and Canada, actually, before the United States as well. I find that there's a lot missing in the conversations around immigrants and immigration. Um, and so two or three years back, I was fortunate enough to do a TEDx talk, uh, TEDx Fort Wayne, on the I behind the immigrant or the I in immigrant, um, kind of telling my my story and uh, showing how there's a lot more that goes into the process of immigration, but also beyond that, there's a lot more that goes within the mind and uh, emotion and intellect and relationships of who we label as an immigrant. Uh, and for me, looking beyond the label, seeing what it all entails to be an immigrant in the United States is is fascinating. Uh, and again, I think the conversations are not as uh, well as they could be. Uh, a lot of times we ask the question, and that may come across as offensive uh, and answer the question in a defensive way. And it seems like we've lost the art of conversation. So I'd like to start some conversations around this, uh, speak about beyond just the political rhetoric that we're uh, so engrossed in recently and uh, get to know the people uh, who chose to make the United States their home. Can we back up even further and talk about your journey to the United States and to Fort Wayne, Indiana? I am Palestinian, and actually my journey starts with uh, with my parents, in particular June 1948. Uh, June 1948, our hometown of Yibna, Palestine, was uh, occupied by Zionist forces in the establishment of uh, the State of Israel. And so my father was about eight years old and my mother was uh, five, and they were both forced out of their home. Uh, and they traveled through Palestine, eventually settling as refugees in, uh, in Rafah, close to the Egyptian border. After high school and looking for a job, my father got an opportunity in Qatar. Uh, and so traveling on a refugee travel document issued by Egypt, he was able to uh, move to Qatar 
and establish a family, go back to Palestine, to Rafah, marry my mother, and uh, all five of us, my two sisters and my two brothers and I, were all born and raised in Qatar. Being uh, born in Qatar does not give you citizenship. There's no naturalization by birth. Uh, so we were residents of the country, and the residency depended on whether the main breadwinner, in this case my father, uh, was employed by a Qatari company. Uh, so our existence uh, there was tied to my father's employment. Uh, we couldn't own uh, anything uh, without a sponsor. So as, as a resident of the country, you had no right to own a house, to buy a business, to do any uh, of the privileges of citizenship. So growing up uh, with, with that uncertainty, uh, there was always the concept of we're going to settle somewhere else. And my parents were very keen on making sure that we get a higher education because in their mind, in their opinion, getting a degree would open doors for you to settle somewhere else. And after high school, I moved to... Uh, slightly or for a short period in Cleveland joining my brother who just graduated dental school and then we got landed immigrant status in Canada so I moved to London Ontario got my bachelor's in biology and my Canadian citizenship and in 2000 moved to the U.S. for my doctoral pharmacy degree and been in the U.S. for the past 20 years. Looking back do you think that you and your family faced discrimination in Qatar for not mm -hmm. being official citizens of the country? I want to be careful as I say that, not for out of concern, but careful not to sound as ungrateful for what Qatar has done for us. Uh, I'm, I'm a product of free public education. We had free access to health care. Uh, very generous people and generous government uh, at the time that we were growing up and, and settling in there. So there was no discrimination, but there was that sense that you're still a second-class citizen. You know, you built relationships and everything, but it all seemed to be on, on shaky ground because of that uncertainty of whether I can, I can remain in it forever or not. Did you and your family know how to speak English before you moved away mm -hmm. from Qatar? So uh, English, I think you'd, you'd consider it second language in Qatar. And uh, we start learning uh, the English language in fifth grade and continue throughout the end of high school. I've lived pretty much my entire life in Northeast Indiana, mm -hmm. and uh, for a lot of reasons, I, I love this place, but I could see why some people might not consider Northeast Indiana as a place to settle. So I'm curious, what brought you to Northeast Indiana in the first place? What brought me actually was work. as was uh, Manchester University College of Pharmacy. I came in as a, as a founding faculty and uh, administrator uh, with the College of Pharmacy. At the time I was looking at moving, uh, my wife and I had had our second child. Uh, both our families are in Michigan. My wife is uh, born and raised in, in East Lansing area, and her family is there. So we're looking at the Midwest as a, as a place to move, and this opportunity with Manchester opened up. So we moved here about eight years ago, and... We love it. It's just it's a great place to raise a family, um, safe, great public schools, uh, good community, good trails, a lot of things to do. And it's a it's a, a little more relaxed lifestyle as well that, that we both enjoy. 
Uh, and actually, right now, uh, as I'm looking at career changes, finishing up my work with uh, Manchester and moving on to a new opportunity, I can move different places, but it's been so hard to think about leaving Fort Wayne. You know, it's become home. It's actually the, the, the place I've lived the most ever since leaving Qatar. You talked about why you enjoy living here, but have there been moments where you maybe weren't quite so sure? Or have there been negative experiences, you think, uh, because of your background? Yes, and it's... It's it's a compilation of different things. Um, we have a, a good and growing Muslim community in Fort Wayne, but it's not as big as sometimes you'd like it to be. To have uh, the uh, a bigger, you know, presence with uh, more opportunity for the kids to be growing among uh, Muslims and interacting with them uh, on a more regular basis. So there were times where I'm thinking about, is it enough of a community? for me and for my family. Uh, and other times it was more like, okay, I'm kind of getting tired of being the only Ahmed Abdelmajid in, <laughs> in the entire city. Um, nothing negative necessarily in the sense of uh, a, a, a direct attack on my person or a direct attack on the fact that I'm an immigrant or a Muslim. Uh, there were a couple of incidents uh, over the eight years, but nothing to say, okay, I'm concerned for my safety or I don't feel welcomed here. To the contrary, actually, uh, I feel that Fort Wayne, uh, I've done a lot more uh, interfaith work. I've done a lot more speaking in churches, in different uh, institutions, uh, healthcare institutions, academic settings, and all of that than I've done anywhere else, which is really a reflection on um, our community here and, and the thirst for knowledge and the appetite for conversation around uh, these topics and these issues. And why do you think there should be more interfaith dialogue? I mean, I think in all my experiences and even my, my personal experience of understanding uh, Christianity or Judaism or any other faith tradition or religion, that you can read about it, you can hear about it, but I don't think you can experience it truly until you've interacted with people that believe in that faith or want that lifestyle. And, and so I think that especially in the past few years, the conversation around Islam, the conversation around Muslims, the faith itself, it's become, for me, a, a lifelong mission. I think that God has granted me the ability to uh, articulate uh, some issues, to be able to be open about my faith, my faith practice, and how I live my life with it. And uh, I feel it's an obligation upon me to share that with others. Because, you know, whether it's coming from a place of ill intent or not, there's a lot of misinformation out there. Uh, there's a lot of disinformation out there about Islam, about Muslims, about a faith that is practiced by 1.7 billion members of, of uh, this earth. And we can't overcome some of the misconception or disinformation without really having a conversation about it. Can you talk about what it was like adjusting to life in Canada and then later the U.S.? <laughs> How much time do we have? <laughs> I mean, adjusting is, um, is constant. Um, I don't think that I can, uh, even 24 years later, can say that I'm, I'm well-adjusted because I don't really fully know what adjusted means. Uh, but 
there are cultural practices that are completely different. And, and yes, I went through what sociologists would call culture shock. Um, culture shock with regards to religion, for example. You know, I grew up in a predominantly Muslim country, but had a couple of Christian friends, and there were other, you know, Hindu and Sikh. Um, but coming to the United States, and there are people that don't even believe in the concept of God in, in the U.S. and Canada. And so that, you know, made me think about why do I believe what I believe in? Why do I call myself a Muslim? What does it mean to be Muslim? And all of that. Uh, there were cultural practices that I didn't know. I, and, and little things that we, um, you know, in retrospect, I, I look back and reflect on. And I'm like, wow, I didn't, you know, I didn't realize those fully until now. But things as, as um, uh, you know, just regular vernacular. When, when I'm 18, 19, been in Canada for a year or whatever, and my 18, 19-year-old friends are referencing pop culture things that, I didn't grow up with uh, or shows that they watched as kids growing up that I didn't watch or don't understand and I feel lost in the conversation. So I, I'm there, I'm speaking English, you know, fully and I can understand the conversation but I'm still not understanding meanings behind certain expressions or certain references because I didn't have the uh, the background with that. So there was a lot of questions that raised in my mind and a lot of going um, you know I, I liken it to walking a tight rope between two cultures uh, where sometimes it's um, it's hard to maintain the balance um, so I've seen a lot of folks that just said you know the heck with all this I am who I am I am this particular culture and I will you know just live among folks that believe and think the same way I am. I do, and not going to interact with with the rest of the world. Yeah, I mean, I sound a little dramatic, but you know, it's just holding tight to what they know as comfortable, as familiar, and not being open to new experiences. And I've seen others that went completely the opposite way and just uh, rejected wherever they grew up and. Um, um, you know, just adopted the American culture fully. Not that there's negative in either, but I think that the best way that we can grow as individuals or as a society is if we um, take our cultures and take best practices from all cultures and grow with them. A lot of times in, in sociology, we heard the term melting pot, and it's still a term that we use when we talk about, you know, the United States is a melting pot. Everybody comes in here and, you know, all cultures. I, I, I like to think of us as a mosaic rather than a melting pot. That I, as a, a Palestinian Muslim immigrant, I have my own beauty and my own little piece. But when you put me with all the other pieces around me, we make that bigger picture that is the mosaic that is more beautiful, and I think that that's what the United States is, um, and Canada to an extent, too. And today, you know, in the past few years, we've entered a part in U.S. history where the culture, our politics have been harsher to immigrants. And you mentioned you have children. Do you worry about their future? Do you worry about your own future? I mean, that's, that's the thing. 
And I think that that's one of the, the, the main reasons why I wanted to have these conversations is that there's a constant level of worry in your mind as an immigrant, whether it's worrying about financial stability or worrying about the, the transformation of your own culture and your own cultural understanding. Um, so in more particular ways, every single day there's a thought that crosses my mind about am I going to be able to live the rest of my life here? And, and it's no exaggeration that that's a thought that crosses my mind every day. It's heightened uh, by looking at my children and um, their, the opportunities for them to, to speak the Arabic language, a language that uh, I did not really appreciate until I, I left the Arabic uh, world. Uh, but it's such a rich and beautiful language, and I enjoy its poetry. I enjoy everything about it. And seeing that my kids are not going to experience it as well as I have is worrisome. Um, worrying about faith. And, you know, I grew up in a predominantly Muslim country. I didn't really need to think about faith. It was doing what everybody else was doing. And I got to learn a lot more about my faith moving away from a predominantly Muslim country. But now I think back and I think I had strong foundations. Am I able to provide my kids strong foundations in, in their faith here? And so these worries and concerns are, are constant in an immigrant's mind, or at least my mind, uh, and their daily conversations with oneself. Now you add on top of it the, the political rhetoric, and now it's beyond rhetoric, the policies, uh, when we talk about uh, you know, limits on, on uh, certain predominantly Muslim countries, Arab countries, and the resurfacing of supremacism, uh, whether it's national or white supremacism, that uh, you know, we've told ourselves for a while in this culture that you know, we're a post-racial society, but we've seen it rear its ugly head uh, over the past few years even stronger. Um, and I, and you know, not, not to go political, I don't think it's the, the Trump person that has started that. I think it's always been there, but it's felt more emboldened and come out stronger in the last few years. That shifts the worry to a much heightened status and gets you thinking more about, okay, so my kids with names that are foreign sounding, uh, but they, 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 they look white pretty much. I mean, if we if we put it in such blunt terms, uh, my wife is is American. Uh, you know, her father is Dutch and her mother is from Michigan. Um, so, my kids, if you don't ask them what their names are, pretty much like me, they'd fly under the radar. You you know, you'd see them as just a, another white member of of the community. I worry about whether they would feel that they are still a member of this community and that they're fully American. I, you know, over 24 years have dealt with this and I've developed my own mechanism for dealing with it. And instead of saying, I'm just going to pick up and leave and go somewhere else, uh, I chose to change the narrative, to challenge the narrative, to, to have conversations, to secure a better future for my kids and other kids around this topic in particular. But I worry about even when conversations with my, with my kids, I don't reference Qatar as home. I don't talk about going back home because I don't, I've seen it with um, a lot of friends as we were, you know, becoming 
adults in in uh, here uh, growing up in households that kept talking about going back home or back home, they felt that, okay, well, where is home? There's that loss of sense of identity. And I intentionally don't talk in those terms with my kids because I want them to fully understand that they're fully American, they're fully Muslim American, to be proud of their heritage, and that they are members of this community and this society, regardless of what the atmosphere around them is. So whether it's positive or negative or neutral or, you know, a combination, how would you explain your experience as an immigrant in Northeast Indiana? I'd, I'd say in Northeast Indiana overall, uh, very positive. Um, but I, I also want to put the caveat there that I speak from a privileged vantage point, and we have to address that privilege and understand it. I am currently a professor and a dean at a college. I have two degrees. I have been professional for the past 15 years in my work. So my interactions, my more or less my echo chamber are what folks with similar backgrounds or with similar outlook on life or similar outlook on society and who we are. So I don't want to say that my experience or my view is reflective of the immigrant experience, because if you talk to a, uh, a, a black uh, North African Muslim, a, a black, you know, a lot of my friends are from Chad or from Sudan. Uh, their experience as a as a black Muslim immigrant in Northeast Indiana might be completely different to mine as a white-skinned college professor in Northeast Indiana. So my own personal experience and understanding my own privilege, it's been a, a very positive experience. So how would you identify yourself? You mentioned that Qatar isn't really home and you've moved to different countries over the years. How would you identify Ahmed Abdelmajid? Hmm. Um, confused. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's, that's a very good question. Um, and I think, you know, if we, if we circle back to um, why this podcast and why um, having the conversations around these issues. Um, although this question is, is very well intended, I, I think it's, uh, it's reductive in a way, um, especially with, with the world as it is now in becoming the big village. Um, identity is multifaceted. And for me, uh, there's a inter intersectionality of uh, a lot of different identities. So, um, you know, it, it depends really on, on on the conversation. It depends on what I'm doing. It, not to say that I put on a different face or a different persona for different occasions, but, you know, if our conversations is about religion and religious tolerance or religious understanding, I am a Muslim. If we talk about um, uh, you know, immigration and refugees and uh, their status and what they're doing. I am an immigrant. Um, you know, if we delve into that a little more, I'm still Palestinian, even though I haven't, um, I think the only time that I've been to Palestine is when I was two years old. But they all play big parts of my identity and they're all uh, 
a, a mix of who I am. I am a proud Canadian. I am a proud American. I've lived in the United States a lot more than I than I did in Canada, but I still lived a big you know, chunk of my formative years in Canada. And a lot of my experiences uh, there uh, are ones that were lifelong lessons for me. And in the United States, I'm a, I'm an American citizen. I'm a voting citizen, something I was never able to do until I, get, I got my, you know, my Canadian and then my American citizenship to vote in both countries respectively. And And it's a privilege and an understanding that I want to take full advantage of as an American citizen that's able to speak his mind, that's able to express himself, and it's given the opportunity uh, to do so. Uh, things that I didn't necessarily grow up with, you know, growing up in Qatar, again, uh, very generous and were well treated, uh, but you, you know, there was the, uh, the sense of uh, don't bite the hand that feeds you. Uh, kind of holding you in in a corner in a sense. So I couldn't, um, you know, criticize the government uh, or I couldn't get into even a big brawl or a fight because I might drag my parents into it in the police department and then this whole becomes an issue because, you know, even though you're a legal resident, but that card will be pulled on you to say, you know, you, you better appreciate what you have. Um, and just not having the freedom to express myself, but being in the United States and, and you know, getting that, that ability, that opportunity to speak my mind, to challenge norms uh, or, or political norms or to challenge uh, concepts that uh, I feel are, are misinformed is something that I hold dear and I'm proud of being an American for it. So identity is is I, I'm I'm a compilation of my experiences. Um and I can't just say I'm one thing over everything else. You came to the United States in two thousand. Can you describe what it was like coming in two thousand and then suddenly living in the post nine eleven world? Yeah, and, and that was um that was a turning point in my life. Um, so when I came to the U.S. in 2000, I had uh, been granted my Canadian citizenship. So it was easier to to come on my Canadian passport, um, to get my student visa, and to study in the United States. Um, I went to Ferris State in Big Rapids, Michigan, a uh, smaller town, smaller community. And... I actually know exactly where I was and what happened when September 11 happened. Uh, I was sitting in a professor's office. We were just chatting. Uh, his phone rings. Uh, his face goes completely white. He's pale. And I'm like, everything okay? Thinking something at home happened or whatever. And he said, a plane just hit the World Trade Center. And it, it didn't register in my mind. I'm like, oh, you know, small engine plane veered off. It, you know, there was a bad accident, you know. And then I walked down to our lecture hall, and it was actually being broadcast live, and I saw the second plane hit the the World Trade Center. And, uh, you know, learning that Al-Qaeda and Muslims and, and things like that, and my mind went immediately to the handful of Muslim Arab student and Arab students that are in my class. And so I waited by the door 
Uh, and I recall clearly uh, telling them all, I said, please turn back and go home. I said, go back to your apartment, stay there. Uh, anybody confronts you or whatever, just, you know, just keep walking. Go home. Let's wait and see what's going on here. I wasn't necessarily scared. I was utterly confused. And at that point, too, you know, having moved away from Qatar for four years, I've been involved in some conversations about religion and conversations about, you know, uh, being an Arab or whatever. But it was, you know, side conversations here and there. At that point, it became almost crystal clear to me that um, I am an ambassador of, of my faith, my country, my background and everything that whether I like it or not, I'm going to be speaking on behalf of all of those uh, in, in the minds of people that saw this this atrocity happen right in front of us. So I, I asked my, uh, my classmates um, who are Muslim or Arabic background to go home, settle in there for a little bit, let's figure out what's going on. And that's when just my life shifted to speaking about and learning how to speak about the religion of Islam, uh, not defending it, because if I defend, then I've already bought into the frame of mind of the person who's asking me to defend it. But speaking about it as, as um, here's what it is, here's what Islam is, here's what the true religion is, and for you to make up your mind or understand where the faith is coming from and the difference between politicizing religion for an ulterior motive or, you know, like Al-Qaeda and Shabab and, you know, Boko Haram and all the ones that we hear today versus the actual practice of the 99.9% of the Muslim population. How would you talk to your children about an attack like this? Well, I mean, it's it's understanding what the faith is and understanding that um, I mean I think one of the toughest conversations that that a person has with his or her children is about evil in the world in whatever form that it may come in and uh, just having that conversation that you know there are some people that may have a name similar to yours or claim to be of the same faith as you or from the same neighborhood or what have you but that doesn't give them a uh, get-out-of-jail-free card. That doesn't mean that just because, you know, his name is Ahmed and my dad's name is Ahmed and, or his name is Ahmed and my dad's name is Ahmed, that means he's, a, you know, he's good like my dad, you know. Um, because, again, it's getting beyond just the, 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 the label or what first meets the eye. So it's talking more about, uh, you know, fr- from, from one point, what is... They're, what are they trying to do? You know, these people that, uh, Al-Qaeda, those terrorists that did September 11 and are causing uh, other issues across the world, what is their goal? What is their ulterior motive? And why are they using this vehicle that they claim to be Muslims and using the religion to um, to fulfill or to lure people in or to... Um, you know, to to recruit for that. How are they doing that? And why is it that we don't believe that and that that's not part of the religion? So obviously based on the age of the child and, and what have you, but to keep them 
curious about the world, to keep them curious about why are they growing in the thought process or the faith that they have so that they ask the right and appropriate questions to understand and distinguish between people who want to wreak havoc in the world, uh, whether they call themselves Muslims, Christians, Jews, or what have you, and to learn to to isolate that from the faith itself and look at the source and what does it say about that and what does it say about them and their actions. What do you think is the biggest misconception people have about immigrants? I think in, and, and it's not just actually in, in the most recent days, but it's something that I've always heard uh, ever since I, I, uh, I moved away from my place of birth. Uh, is the question about, or is the is the um, uh, the misconception that immigrants and refugees are freeloaders, or that they come here and they're automatically on the social welfare programs and they are um, uh, lazy, they're leeches on society, and all of that. Uh, and we've heard many varieties of it from um, our current president of the United States to daily conversations that I sometimes have with people about the issue of immigrants and immigration. And what's lost in all of that is the the fact that nobody really leaves their home without a compelling reason. You don't leave your the friends that you grew up with, the family that you have, the place that you're most comfortable with uh, to come here without a compelling reason. And a lot of times there's that sense of accountability too that you know I come here and there's that that um, hidden subconscious force that's driving me to be the most successful that I can be in whatever measure of success that I have because you know if I went through all of this I need to be successful to show something for it and so there's a lot of folks that work hard day in and day out and work hard to maintain a good, the gratitude for having the opportunity to be here. And they show that gratitude by working hard, by making a good life for themselves and for their children and, you know, uh, becoming great citizens of the United States and building our economy, building our culture, building our education building, you know, a lot of the things that any civilized society would take as measures of success overall. Today, it feels like more than ever, there's tribalism, and there's a lot of hate Mm -hmm. and vitriol and us versus them. And when you see these, this kind of media and these kind, these, this hateful content, do you find yourself more engaged with the news or do you ever find yourself pulling back and putting your blinders on because it's just too much <laughs> it, it is too much and it waxes and wanes uh, but I try to to remain as engaged as possible because if I choose not to hear it it doesn't mean that it doesn't exist and it's out there and there are people that are consuming that believing in it and I and I, and I want to do all I can to shift the narrative, to, to change the conversation. Uh, and again, a, a big motive behind this podcast and hopefully future podcasts is, is that. Um, this 
tribalism of us versus them, it's not exclusive to, you know, white American society. It's really any, we, we were seeing it within each community of its own. There's the sense of tribalism within Muslims living in the United States. There's a sense of tribalism within Catholics uh, or Protestants or black Americans or what have you. Um, it, it exists in any community. It exists in any if you use that one factor as your identifying factor. And then if I want to talk about my negative experiences living in the United States and I'm coming at it from just one angle, the other person is going to come at their experiences in the United States from that one angle. And if we don't see each other, if we don't see uh, where the other person is coming from, then we don't have that conversation and we increase the us versus them. We need bridge builders in the sense of establishing that understanding of why does this person feel the way that they feel or why are they expressing themselves this way. Uh, it's easy to dismiss, to say there is no structural racism in our American government. We're the we're the world's largest democracy. We're the most democratic country. We we you know, we spout these things as citizens, and I truly believe in it. But I don't think that we are at the ideal that we think we are. There are a lot of things that disadvantage people of color, that disadvantage immigrants who citizens or have become citizens of the United States. And those conversations, they're tough. But they need to be had in order for us to move and become better society. So I don't tune these things out because they're out there and being consumed. And I need to understand where someone might be coming from in their perspective so that I'm able to express concerns or discuss their perspective in an understandable way that we can reach a better global understanding of the issue. Are you hopeful about the future, whether that future is for you and your family or uh, for other people you've connected with over the years? Absolutely. I mean, it, it, without hope, <laughs> there's what's what's the purpose of existence, right? Uh, but I, I'm absolutely hopeful. And even, you know, when, when we talk about the height of the issues that we're going through right now as, as an American society, whether it's the race discussions or whether it's the immigration or religion, uh, you know, as, as hateful they sometimes are, as vitriol sometimes they are, uh, filled they, vitriol filled they are sometimes, uh, as much as I'm hopeful because they are out in the open and we're addressing them. I think our biggest issue in recent years is that we kept telling ourselves, well, we've elected the first black president. We're a post-racial society. We've moved beyond issues of race, uh, which clearly we are not. And there's a lot to be discussed. And we can't really overlook a 300-year history by just one window or moment in time. Uh, so they're coming out they're coming out maybe not in the in the best way that we want them to be discussed but they're being discussed at least they're on the table and that gives me hope because my children and their children will hopefully continue the conversation and I do everything that I can to steer that conversation towards positive outcomes and there's a lot of people that are 
active and involved in these issues that they want they they want them to be discussed we can't keep neglecting x because you don't experience it per- personally you know we have to put that on the table and talk about it and i am from seeing the conversation happen very hopeful for for our future why do you think people are so uncomfortable having conversations like these you know when when just when we were talking a few minutes ago that was the first time i ever asked someone who's muslim what it, what their experience was like post 911 mm-hmm. and i have to admit you know i was a little nervous asking that question at first because i'm worried you know am i going to offend him or is this going to cause conflict or what have you so why do you think people are so uncomfortable with that that's a very good question, but I'll flip. I'll flip yeah, it to you. Why were you? <laughs> why were you? Well, what were you worried about? Offending, really. Okay. People can be very sensitive about their identity, mm-hmm. and I've been raised to be polite, mm-hmm. and to. And thankfully, I was, you know, raised in a family that, you know, we respect all religions and we respect people from different backgrounds. But that being said, I grew up in probably the whitest part of town in a pretty rural area Mm -hmm. so I guess it was you know being unfamiliar with what kind of response I might receive and knowing that there's a good chance it could have been a negative Mm -hmm. response yeah and and that's been my experience is that the perception of the reaction of the person being asked that question but also there's a, a discomfort with knowing how to ask the question because you, you said that you were afraid of asking the question and coming across as offensive. And, you know, I, I want to I wanna reference um, uh, in one panel discussion about diversity and inclusion, uh, there was a gentleman uh, in a wheelchair and he framed it to me and, and to the audience in, I think, the best way possible. He said, you know, when I'm at the grocery store in my wheelchair and a three or four-year-old with his mother or his dad or her, her dad, and they say, Mommy, Daddy, what's wrong with him? And we say, shh, it's, you know, don't be disrespectful, don't, you know, or, or mind your business or something. Like we, we shut their curiosity and then they learn that, okay, I shouldn't be asking or talking about these issues. He's like, no, I would rather have the child and the parent come to me and to ask. And I will tell them, you know, here's my story, or I was born this way, or I was in a car accident, or whatever the case may be. Because then the kid grows up knowing that there are people who are like that, or who experience life differently than I have. And you know, satisfied that curiosity, but also learned how to talk about it without growing up and becoming an adult and feeling awkward about, you know, I really want to ask, you know, Ahmed about his religion because I'm hearing a lot of things on the news or I've seen this and all they're talking about is this, but, you know, I know Ahmed and I know different Muslims and I know that they're not that way, but I don't know how to ask them that question. So I think it goes back to, again, the art of the conversation. Of, And I think one of the questions that we want to ask our, our interviewees as we discuss is that how would you like people or what is a way that you think people can approach asking about 
your skin color, your accent, your uh, religious garb, or this or that. Uh, because I think that's really what we're lacking as a, as a society. Would you consider yourself an open book and you would be okay with someone just coming up and asking you what your religion is all about and about where you come from and your beliefs? Absolutely. But I also learned um, how the question is being asked, whether it's a question coming from someone who really wants to know and learn, which is the majority of the time, or whether it's a question of someone trying to uh, prove a point in their mind that it's already made up and there's no, you know, uh, changing or there's no discussion there. Um, but the majority of my interactions and, and invitations that I get to speak or what have you, I'm open book. I'm comfortable with who I am. I'm comfortable with, with uh, expressing uh, my experiences, talking about my faith, talking about immigration or what have you. But it's not the same level for everybody. And it doesn't mean, I mean, because just some people, I mean, my wife is, she's not a public speaking person. She just is on her own. She's a little more introvert and, and everything. And although I'm comfortable with it and I've trained myself to be comfortable and to have this conversation, not everybody is. And I'm comfortable with talking about it with anyone who is really wanting to engage in a conversation and a discussion about the topic rather than someone who's shooting questions to try and, oh, I got him or I, you know, I put him in a corner that he can't defend this or can't talk about that. So again, a lot of times with my conversations about the religion in particular, I start with, I'm here to tell you what Islam is, not what it's not. And, you know, we, we, establish that understanding of the faith. We establish the similarities within the Abrahamic faiths, Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. And then we talk about the differences, and then we talk about how some people may manipulate and what have you. Um, but for for the majority, I think we want to just know, you know, it, it is uncomfortable. It might get uncomfortable at some point, but if we don't have those conversations, we're not moving forward. One of the things that folks, um, you know, when we, when we talk about my experiences as an immigrant, um, a lot of times I get the reaction that I'm well-adjusted, you know, um, academic, um, speak, you know, English with a slight accent, uh, you know, found a way to to be proud of my culture, but also uh, uh, assimilate within the American culture and, you know, be comfortable in my own skin uh, in many gatherings and in different ways, um, which, you know, it, for me is is hard work. It's, it's an everyday thing. Uh, but then for, there's that, that perception that whatever is going on in my mind is, is calm and is done, but there's <laughs> there's really a storm that like every day there are thoughts, uh, identity thoughts. There are uh, you know things that I have to address on daily basis. Of am I doing the best thing for my children? Um, questions that I think we all have. You know, you you have about are you securing a, a good future for your kids? Are you giving them pri proper education? Are you giving them a good home life? Are you giving them, you know, lots of the different things that make them happy? Those all go through my mind 
naturally, but then they're compounded and they are heightened by many different things. Uh, you know, sometimes I'd, I'd, I'd read some uh, Arabic poetry and all of a sudden I'm overcome with the sense of sadness in a way that, that my kids won't get to appreciate it as much as I have. Not worried about, you know, the culture dying off or anything like that, but it's more of that this experience that I have with this language, um, there is a stronger chance that my kids won't have it. Um, and sometimes even, you know, I, I think, you know, I jokingly tell my wife, I'm like, let's, let's just go move back to Qatar. And she's like, okay, but I guarantee you that you won't last a week there. And <laughs> it's true because I, you know, when I go back and I visit family, I have extended family and my oldest sister and my friends from high school and, and everything else like that. I've gotten so accustomed to a different lifestyle that now where was home at one point is foreign to me. So you're caught between... Uh, not 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 to sound uh, religiously insensitive, but purgatory in a way that you know there's not really that one place that I can just call home home that this is it. So it's intentional work for me, and I found Fort Wayne to be the uh, the best place for me to to be more comfortable with calling home. And so it's it's just these are the things that I want to get at when talking to immigrants, talking about. One of one of uh, people I really enjoy talking to, and I've I've met over the years, is Paul Demarie. He he owns uh, Firefly Coffee Shop. I'm a I'm a coffee addict. <laughs> I spent all my, you know, college days studying coffee shops. My wife actually was a barista at the coffee shop that I went <laughs> to. Um, so, you know, and and here Firefly gave me that sense of again home and comfort. Uh, and this is not a commercial plug for it, but it's just a great place in town. And I was talking to Paul about this. Paul, his his mother is from England, and we were talking about immigrant experiences and immigration and things like that. And he framed it to me in a, I, I asked him, I said, what would you like to know uh, from someone who's an immigrant? And what would you like to to understand about their you know, thought process, mental status, things like that? And he said he framed it to me in a, in a way that made a whole lot of sense. Um, his background, he was a chaplain for a while and things like that. He said, I want to know how they deal with grief. And I'm like, okay, that's interesting. You know, death is part of life and everybody's going to... He's like, no, no, it's not that. It's grief of losing something. So you've lost certain things as an immigrant. You know, I've lost the culture for example or the even sometimes the ability to express certain things in Arabic because I've learned how to express them in English and I find myself stuttering or having a hard time trying to express it in a meaningful way in in the language that I grew up with and he's like I want to know that sense of grief you know how is it how do they handle grief how do they cope with it and to me that frames it in a in a very nice way that there is a sense of grief daily. I grieve, you know, that they won't have the same upbringing that I had. I mean, and it's naturally, even if I was living in Qatar, they won't have the same upbringing that I had, you know, when I was a kid, just changing in culture or change in community and dynamic and whatever. But it has an added compounded factor, the fact that I'm an immigrant, I'm a minority here. The calling this home so that my kids understand 
they don't grow up thinking that I don't belong or there's a different home or whatever. But calling this home and also giving them enough of a sense of pride of the culture of their parents. My wife's um, father is Dutch and he moved to the United States uh, from the Netherlands. Uh, to be proud of that, to be proud of their Dutch heritage, but also to be proud of their Palestinian heritage, to be proud of their Arab heritage, uh, and to grow up as uh, Muslims in the United States with that added status of a minority religious group in the country, with the challenges that come from that, with the understandings and growth that comes from that. Am I giving them the right tools to be able to do that successfully? You call Northeast Indiana home, but will it ever feel like home to you? Um, it, it's starting to. The more time we spend here, I think the uh, the memories that we're creating with our kids. So my, my oldest was a little over two years old when we moved here. So they pretty much um, have lived their life. She's 11 now. So they've lived most of their lives or all of their lives here. And so there are memories that we create with them, and those are memories that I'd like to hold on to. And, and it's creating that sense of home because of the family that we're raising here and the ability to raise a good family here and, and raise it comfortably. Reminds me of, um, sorry to interrupt, it no. reminds me of that phrase, home isn't a place, it's a state of mind. Exactly. Yeah, home is a state of mind, and my, uh, my constantly... Uh, um, ac acrobatic state of mind is a little less um, uh, active. <laughs> I don't know how to say that, but just to say that feeling a little more um, comfortable in Fort Wayne, uh, knowing that, you know, I've built relationships here, that I have people that I call friends, that uh, I'm able to do the work that I enjoy with the community, uh, that I've become somewhat, I mean, I, I don't like talking about myself or putting myself in this sense, but becoming a resource in a way where I feel fulfilled beyond the job or the career that I have. Uh, and so, yeah, as, as we're looking at different opportunities and whatever else, uh, we go back to, yeah, but we're, we really like it here. I mean, I had opportunity three or four years ago um, for a major university in Texas and, and, and a raise and a higher title um, that I turned down just because we didn't want to leave Fort Wayne. Do you ever get resentful of the fact that you'll always be considered a minority in this part of the country, in this part of the world? Resentful is a strong word. I don't. I wouldn't say resentful. I think I've I've learned to accept it as part of who I am and part of my identity, and also to use it to uh, my advantage. Now, not my selfish personal advancing myself, but the advantage of advancing voices, advancing uh, opportunities for. Uh, you know, we always talk about giving voice to the voiceless. I don't like that. I I like to say giving. Uh, voice to those whose voices are heard less. You know, some people are uncomfortable talking about experiences. Some people are unable to express it. And if I have that ability and I know that I'm a token, you know, there's there's no way around that. Sometimes 
I get invitations to a place because I'm a Muslim or I'm an immigrant or I'm an Arab. And most of the time, it's because they're really interested in what I have to say. Few times I feel tokenized and I reject those invitations. You know, you know, they have a panel of six people and I'm the only non-majority culture who's on that panel. Uh, so understanding how I am a token, but understanding how not to be tokenized and to use the fact that I have this experience, again, to advance discussions about certain issues. To be fully frank, my work here and uh, the uniqueness of my name or the strangeness of my name and what have you is in very large part what led me to call you, my local NPR, and call you in particular and say, hey, I'm interested in doing this podcast and having this on, on the airwaves. And you saw that as, a, as a, an opportunity to advance community conversations. I wouldn't be able to do that, let's say, if I was in Chicago and I'm one of hundreds of thousands of other Ahmed Abdelmajids, you know, or something like that. And in a place here where people are intellectually curious, they want to know Fort Wayne, you know, is, is getting more and more diverse uh, and learning how to become more inclusive and all of that. So this is why I, I engage in these conversations and I understand how being a minority gives me opportunities to talk about these issues uh, and not just resent it as I'm always going to be looked at differently or whatever, accept it as a part of who I am and use it to, again, advance some of the conversations. Well, Ahmed, it's been so fascinating and wonderful talking with you. And I know I'm looking forward to hearing your conversations with other members of our community. Can you tell listeners what they can expect? I'm reaching out to uh, certain members of um, our Northeast Indiana community who um, have great stories to tell. And uh, we're going to have conversations just about their experiences, positive, negative, and everything in between and what it means to be a Hoosier, what it means to be a member of this community, and, you know, um, get a little deeper into uh, their thoughts and emotions about the, the their transitions, what brought them uh, to the United States, what brought them to Fort Wayne or Northeast Indiana, and uh, what they want others to know about them and about their experiences uh, so that we can continue the conversations. Ahmed, thank you so much. Thank you. The I and Immigrant is a production of WBOI Studios in Fort Wayne and was created by Ahmed Abdelmajid. Subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts and keep these conversations going. You can find us on Facebook or visit theiandimmigrant.com to see additional content and pictures of this season's guests. Today's episode was produced and edited by me, Katie Anderson. Thanks for listening. From WBOI, Fort Wayne.